Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. It is really good to be in church. Um, if you're new, I really hope you do feel welcome. Um, my name is Noah. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, yeah, I get a, the opportunity to preach today. Pretty excited. Um, for the last two weeks, um, we've been, or last, I guess, three weeks, we've been on this series called Foundation. And we're talking about our core beliefs here at Grace Harvest Church. And Pastor Raul took us for the last two weeks through two of the points, and one being around the Trinity, the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then last week, he finished up Trinity and talked about Jesus being fully God and fully man. He busted out that super fancy word, the hyperstatic union, <laughs> if you remember that. And um, this week, we're going to go on to our next belief, belief number three. Belief number three. Belief number three is this. Here at the church, we believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again to atone for our sin. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose bodily from the dead, and ascended to the Father to make atonement between humanity and God for human sin. So today we're really going to be focusing on the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This particular thing is accounted for in all four Gospels, meaning in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have all the, have a account of Jesus dying. Each one kind of has a different perspective on that event that happened. Today, we'll be focusing on Luke's account in particular. And just to kind of bring you up to speed really quickly, um, we're going to be in Luke 23 starting. And Jesus has done all of his ministry at this point. He has preached, he has prayed, he has healed people, he has done all the things. He went to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And the, the religious leaders at the time have captured him and are trying to put him in front of kind of a mock trial to get him crucified, okay? So we're at this point of the passage, at this point of scripture, where Jesus is in the hands of the Pharisees and he is putting up for trial, okay? Luke 23 is where the story begins. It says this, Luke 23, one through five, reading out of the ESV version. It says this, and the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar in saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Let's walk through this, the important parts of this passage. The Jewish leaders sought out Pilate in particular because he had a reputation of being exceedingly cruel. So if you were in that time, you, if something was an accusation was charged against you and you were supposed to go to court or to trial, you would return to your, home, your place of birth and there would be a Roman governor over that area. The Roman governor 
over Jesus' area was Bethlehem. And the Roman governor was Herod. But the Jewish leaders at the time had Jesus. And they wanted to find someone that would be the most severe because they wanted Jesus to be killed. So they went and sought out Pilate. Saying, ooh, this guy, he's going to give Jesus this really severe punishment. The three primary charges they leveled against Jesus were this. this. One, he was misleading the nation. In essence, he was saying, hey, there's, he's leading a revolution in an uprising. The second charge was he was not paying taxes and encouraged others to do the same. The third one, he claimed to be king, which would be in direct opposition to the Roman king, Caesar. Pilate, though, unlike his unusually really cruel reputation, surprised everyone in the room and surprised the Jewish council. Because when they brought these charges of treason kind of against him, saying, hey, he's leading the people, he's causing an uprising, they're not going to pay you, he's saying he's king, all these things, Pilate has a response, and he just simply says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just answers him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. At this point, when you read this and read it through multiple accounts in the Gospels, it's very obvious, very obvious, that Pilate saw through the plans of the Pharisees. Very obvious to him. He understood that this was the thing that he was like, these guys are just trying to get Jesus killed. It's the only thing they're trying to do. You're not going to pull a fast one on me. You're not going to deceive me. That's the only objective that's happening here. And and Pilate definitely heard because Jesus was quite famous when he was alive in the land, healing and teaching and performing miracles. So Pilate was not ignorant to what was going on. So when he says, I find no guilt in this man, it says in the next passage, it says, but the religious leaders became urgent, urgent shouting loudly and trying to change the minds of Pilate. Meaning that he gave his verdict. He gave his sentence. He's not guilty. You charged him against these three things, but this isn't, no. I find no guilt in him. And they kept shouting louder, stirring up the crowd. Pilate throughout the whole narrative seems to want out of this situation. He seems to want out of the situation and dealing with Jesus and the religious leaders. In all the commotion, in all the yelling, Pilate hears something, no. He hears someone say that Jesus was from Bethlehem. And he goes, wait, stop. Why is Jesus even here? I am not the Roman governor over his his hometown. Herod is. Get him out of here. And so, Pilate sent all of them, Jesus, and all the religious leaders, Jesus still in captivity, away and into Herod's, basically, jurisdiction. Herod at the time, though, he wasn't in Bethlehem. He was actually in Jerusalem. And once again, to the Jewish leader's surprise, they 
charged Jesus with these three things, trying to get an execution out of it. But much to their surprise, when Jesus walked in to Herod's courtroom, Herod was, says, very glad to see Jesus. He's like, man, I've been looking for you. <laughs> I wanted to meet you. He wanted to meet him because Herod heard about Jesus' miracles, his words, the things that he has done in the land, and Herod wanted to see it firsthand. So Herod asked Jesus, hey, do a miracle. Do a trick. Hey, uh, Jesus, you got a word for me? To all of it, though, Jesus remained completely silent. Completely silent. Spurgeon is this guy who is a theologian, and he has a great quote about this moment that I love. <clears throat> says, he, Jesus, he who answered blind beggars when they cried for mercy is silent to a prince who only seeks to gratify his own irreverent curiosity. Amen. This seemed to frustrate Herod, like intensely frustrate him. And so in verse 11, Luke 23, verse 11, it says this. And Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he was sent back to Pilate. Now go with me. When you read the Bible, put yourself in the situation, in the story. It helps you understand what's going on. Pilate sent them away because he didn't want to deal with Jesus and the religious leaders in this whole situation of them trying to get him killed. He didn't want to deal with it. And I can imagine in my mind, Pilate sitting there, and then in comes waltzing in the door, the same guys he just kicked out. <laughs> and he's like, oh my gosh, not this again. Jesus and the religious leader come again. They're shouting loudly. They're saying the same accusations. So in verse 14, Pilate gathers the chiefs and the rulers, and he says this. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Although this wasn't a death sentence, Herod, or sorry, Pilate did give a sentence. And the sentence was, okay, 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 I hear you. You guys obviously want something to happen to Jesus. You want him to stop teaching. You want him to do all these things. How about this? We'll punish him. And then under Passover law, which Passover was about to happen at that time, the Romans would release one prisoner every year during Passover. So Pilate found this way to appease the religious leaders by saying, okay, we're going to punish him. And then I'm going to use this Passover rule, releasing one prisoner, and I'm going to send Jesus on the way. The punishment, though, was very, very severe. It was a Roman scourging, which you would be tied to a post, and then they would whip you. But the whips were made of leather, and at the ends of them, they had bone and metal tied to them. 
oftentimes lead. And so when they would whip you, it would like tear your back up. And oftentimes people would die during these Roman scourgings. In the moment from blood loss, or they would die after from infection. So even though this, this punishment, it was severe, but it wasn't enough for the Jewish leaders. They didn't accept the verdict, and so they begin to stir up the crowd, it says. They're trying to make a riot happen. Pilate was seeing this happen, and I imagine his guards around him were seeing this unfold as they stirred up the crowd. Then all of a sudden, brought into the courtroom, there's another person they brought in. They go, it is not enough for us to whip Jesus and release him over this Passover law. We brought another, we brought another prisoner, Barabbas. And here is what we want done. We want you to free Barabbas on this Passover law. And we want you to crucify Jesus. Barabbas was a man who was in prison for two things. Insurrection and murder. The crowd became more violent and began to shout. Release to us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. In verse 22, Pilate addresses everyone two more times. First, desiring to release Jesus. And second, he's giving his verdict again. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. The crowd responded again and became even more turbulent, more violent, rejecting the verdict. You have two men both about to receive a sentence of either life or death. And in this room, you have two people being Jesus and Barabbas. They're going to get a sentence of either life or death. Jesus on this one side, he claimed to be the son of God. And he would often refer to God as father. Very much to the religious leaders Despised. They hated that he called him father. But because Jesus was born of this miraculous birth, of a virgin birth of Mary, Mary was his human mother. But since it was miraculous, God was indeed his father. Like Pastor Raul shared even last week, it shows both his fullness of his hum humanity and his divinity. Fully man, fully God. On this other side of the scale, there's this man, Barabbas, who's in prison for two things, insurrection and murder. He was born of a human father and a human mother. He was full of sin, and he was sentenced to death because of murder. The very sin that has infected everyone, and since it starts in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, in Adam and Eve. He, in a lot of ways, just like us, were still reaping the consequences of that sin from the garden. Barabbas' name, though, means son of the father. So you have two people. Two people in this courtroom. 
One claiming to be the Son of God, the Son of the Father, fully human, fully God, sinless, perfect, divine. You have another person whose name means Son of the Father, full of sin. This contrast that's pulling on either side. The contrast illustrating that the payments for all sin of all people since the start in Adam had to be paid with, with the life of Jesus. The scales needed to be balanced. Jesus was the great sacrifice that scaled, or that, that he would balance the scales because the debt of sin was so great. The debt of sin was this, all people, all time, all places, all of that sin, your future sin, my future sin, all of that weighed up on one scale. And the debt of that sin to make it right, for God to have community back with his, his people, Jesus was on the other side to pay for that debt. Pilate finally gives in to the crowd's demands. He frees Barabbas. The man that should not have been freed. And he sends Jesus, or he gives Jesus over to the crowd, more so, to be crucified. They took Jesus from that courtroom. And the first thing is he received a Roman scourging. The whipping. Down to the bone, it says in some places, on his back. And then after that being fully exhausted from courtrooms and night in, in the garden and now a Roman scourging, Jesus is beyond exhausted, wounded and bleeding, and he's forced to carry this cross, this large wooden cross, to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's carrying it. But his body is failing him and he can't really carry it that effectively anymore. The guards end up grabbing this guy named Simon. They grab this guy named Simon and they help, they, they force him to help Jesus carry this cross to the place. They arrive at Golgotha and they hung Jesus on the cross. So how they hung him was they, they'd stretch his arms out and they'd drive a nail through the wrists, breaking not a bone as it's prophesied in scripture in Isaiah through each one and then feet like this and another nail driven through that way. The purpose of crucifixion was to maximize pain. It, wasn't a, it, it actually wasn't created by the Romans, but it says that the Romans perfected it. In all of that, in verse 34, with the scourging, carrying of the cross, and then on the cross being nailed to it, in verse 34, Jesus says and prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Illustrating to us, even in our day-to-day, -day, the maximum degree of loving your enemy. Commentaries and theologians 
speculate that Jesus said a similar prayer while being scourged and while carrying the cross as well. Jesus hung on the cross, struggling for breath as people came and mocked him. Jesus also was hung with two criminals on their own crosses, one on the left and one on the right. In Luke 23, verse 39, it says, As one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, mocked him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not fear, do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, We are receiving the due reward of our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said back to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is a beautiful example of scripture of a, what we would call a deathbed conversion. At the last moment, this thief places his faith in Jesus, and Jesus responds by today, you'll be with me in heaven. In John 3, 16 and 17, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, quite simply, is in the heaven business. And he is looking for every opportunity to get his people into heaven. Every opportunity. The thief on the cross, the very last second. He didn't even say this in his prayer, you know. (laughs) It should mess with your theology. It should, it should give you even hope. And it gives this in me, and it should you. Don't give up on people. Because you never know how the story will end. Verse 44. It says this. Jesus is on the cross. Thieves are on the other side of him. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what has taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, This man was innocent. A Roman historian shared this about that time when Jesus was on the cross. A solar eclipse happened when he was on the cross. It blacked out everything. But what's really, really strange is the solar eclipse shouldn't have happened. Astrologers have been tracking the movement and the lunar movement forever. Long time. You can track it back historically and in scripture. But in the time of Jesus, 
that solar eclipse should not have been there. It shouldn't have been. It was not in the right cycle. It's a blip in history. Also, when he died, the eclipse happened. It darkened the sun. It says the whole earth shook. Simply because of this, the entire creation groaned at the death of its creator. Everything shook. Everything went dark at the death of Jesus. The entire creation reacted to it. The veil also was torn in two. The veil they're talking about is in the temple. In Exodus, I think it's almost easier to understand. God used to reside with or on the Ark of the Covenant or in the Ark of the Covenant. And they had layers of cloth, fabric, and doors that would basically give you access to God if you did everything that was correct. If you didn't and you entered that place called the Holy of Holies, you would oftentimes be killed by just the presence of God. So that place, that veil represented the Holy of Holies, but more so a separation between God and people. When Jesus died, sun blacked out, earth shook, and that curtain tore in two. Be really, really lar- it's a really large curtain if you look it up. That symbolized two things, the significance. That man has free access to God, to God. Because of grace bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Jesus bridged the gap between you and God. The second thing is God no longer dwells in temples made with human hands. But he dwells in those that put his faith, put their faith in him. Empowering and leading them in the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Gospel of John, it accounts this moment that may sound familiar to you, this, this phrase. Jesus, at the moment he died, it's accounted that he said, it is finished. It is finished. In that moment, Jesus paid the debt of sin. Balance the scales. Sin from all people in all time. The weight of an entire humanity and history paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The sinless son of God balanced the scales and paid for your freedom from sin. My freedom from sin. He paid for the sin that you're going to do tomorrow maybe. (laughs) In the next day, in the next day, in the next day. He paid for it. Freedom, wow. Oftentimes what would happen after a crucifixion is they would leave the bodies up on the crosses as examples. But with Passover quickly approaching and then a request made to Pilate, Joseph of Arithamia asked to take Jesus' body down. All that's really said about him is he was a good and righteous man. He took the body down. And in Luke 23, 52, it says this. He took it down, the body, and he wrapped it in linen 
and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet laid. It was a day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The woman who have come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they left so they could return with prepared spices and ointments. Three days, Jesus sat in that tomb, stone tomb, rock in front of it. Jesus laid in that tomb for three days. But during those three days, something happened. Because God is always working. He doesn't stop working. During three days, Revelations gives us a little insight. I love this. A little insight onto what happened during those three days. Revelations 1.18, it says this. Jesus is talking. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus, because of his sacrifice and payment, defeated sin and death, taking the keys to both death and hell. Jesus is the victor. Amen? Death could not hold him. I want you to understand something about sin. The moment that sin was introduced into the garden in Genesis, death quickly followed. Because the final fruit of sin is death. You die. Things on this planet die simply because of sin. That's it. Everything, the fabric of everything has been infected with sin. Sin equals death. In Romans 6, it talks about this. It says, the wages of sin is death. And in essence, because you die is because of sin in the world. But what happens, what happens when Jesus was sinless and he bore the weight of sin of all people of all time, but he himself was sinless. Jesus died, but it was impossible impossible for death to hold him impossible like it couldn't hold him it couldn't keep him because he was sinless acts 2 paul writes about this he said god god raised him up losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it not possible everything changed The transaction was finished. The scales were balanced. Jesus paid it all. The debt was settled for all people in all time. And death could not keep Jesus in that tomb any longer. Luke 24, the next next chapter. It says this. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb... The two Marys, the two women that were there, then they left, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. I love this. The angels at the time, these two men, were confused. <laughs> they go, why are you here? Didn't you listen to what Jesus said while he was alive? He said it a lot. A lot, a lot. We heard it. Why didn't you hear it? So why in the heck are you here? I love that. They're confused. Didn't you hear him say that? We did. The gospel accounts begin to spill out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about this. Jesus appearing to many, many people. Crowds of people. People he was close to. People he knew. Jesus began to appear to places. Death could not hold him. Jesus was back. <laughs> Jesus has risen from the dead, changing everything, and he still continues to do so. Finally, it came to a point where Jesus showed up to his disciples, the ones closest to him. And in verse 36, Luke 24, 36, it says this. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. They, sh they touched Jesus. They talked with Jesus. He was alive. He was risen to them. And then Jesus says to his disciples after that exchange happens, he says, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> Which is really comical because if you think about it, he hasn't eaten for three days. He hasn't eaten for three days. Do you have something to eat? Can I get someone on the piano? The disciples gave him a broiled fish and probably some bread. In Luke 24, 46 to 48, Jesus says this. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And still to this day, we follow this command. Repent to Jesus for your sin, and he will forgive you of those sins through his great sacrifice and the grace of God done on the cross. Freeing you, freeing you of the debt of sin 
the bondage that is sin in hell and giving you life, life now and life after.